you guys as a congregation will respond, and at the end, we will read together. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Where is my honor and respect, says the Lord, but you say, how have we despised your name? Have we not all one Father? But then are we faithless to one another, says the Lord? But you say, Why do you not accept our offering? You have wearied me with your words, says the Lord. But you say, How have we wearied you? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we robbed you? Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? Words of Malachi are a wake-up call against spiritual apathy and a call towards repentance and right worship. Lord, let us wake up from spiritual apathy, reveal to us our selfishness and our sin, and restore our hearts back to you. Please grab a seat. So today our scripture reading is from Malachi 3, 6 through 12. It is a thin book between Zechariah and Matthew. On some Bibles, it might be on page 802. So I'll give you a moment to flip there. Or use the app or follow behind me. (laughs) All right, Malachi 3, 6 through 12. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob... Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I do not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. 
Up next, we have Pastor Jeff. Good morning. It is good and a joy to worship with you this morning. Martin Luther said this when he spoke about the Christian life and about coming to Christ. He said this, that there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, of the mind, and of the purse. Or for some of us, the wallet or our Venmo accounts or our checkings and savings, right? To put it another way, that when we come to Christ, we take up our cross and we lay down our checkbooks. It is a surrendering to God, one of the very things that easily threatens to become the ultimate arbiter of our life. But instead we say no. We follow Jesus. The gospel changes our hearts, it changes our minds, but it also changes our relationship with money, how we view it, how we spend it, even how we save it. It's not money itself that is evil. We remember the words of the gospels, but it's our love of it, right? Shown through greediness for more or anxiety for having less. And that's kind of the different ways in which it, how, how it affects our relationship with God. And as we've been preaching through this book, the book of Malachi, these past few weeks, it's been a wake-up call, right? Not just to Israel, but through God's word to them, it's been a wake-up call to us as well, for us as well. Particularly as we might identify, some of us might identify with these people who Malachi is speaking to, the spiritually apathetic, the cynical, the disillusioned, Right? These were the people who we've seen in the past few weeks start to question God's love, his character, his justice. And this morning, we're going to cover the fifth dispute that God charges Israel with, robbing God. Robbing God. Israel's continued lack of repentance and right worship was evident through their act of robbing God. Now, our passage, actually, if you kind of recall what was just read, it doesn't actually begin with this charge of robbing God. It begins with the unchanging nature of God and who he is. And to to kind of riff off of Martin Luther's quote, before Malachi talks about the conversion of the purse, he's talking about the conversion of our hearts. Before charging them with robbing God, he is calling them to return to God. And so we're in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12 uh, this morning. I'm going to invite you to follow along in your pew Bibles, your Bible apps, or whatever, as, as we hear God's word to us. I'm going to read verses 6 to 7 again. This is the word of the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So this is our first point this morning. It's this, that God's constancy is a comfort when we return to God. God's constancy is a comfort to us when we return to God. So our passage begins with this statement, right, that God doesn't change. And it might seem a little bit out of place in a passage that is focused mostly, mainly on Israel's giving habits. 
But, but notice that what Malachi is doing here is he's tying God's unchanging character, who God is, and he ties that through this word, therefore. Right? He ties it to the people's continued existence as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's almost like if you click on it, it's a hyperlink, right? It takes us back to that first sermon in the series, addressing God's continued steadfast and covenantal love to his people, shown through their own preservation, despite their rebellion, despite their disobedience. God keeps his promises. And the reason why, how do we know that God can keep his promises? How do we know that God is going to follow through with what he says? The reason given to us is because God is unchanging in his character. Think about when was the last time that you broke a promise? Was it a, a promise? Maybe it was a promise to yourself, right? Maybe a New Year's resolution or, you know, some sort of goal that you set for yourself. Or, or maybe it was a promise to someone else. Right? Maybe it was, you know, I promise to take out the trash or clean out the dishes in the sink or I promise not to do this or that again, right? It's we, as people, make and break promises. And I feel like it's, it's really only in those fictional movies where you have those characters who are written this way who, who they can say, like, you know, my word is my bond and, and it actually means something and they actually follow through with it because that's how they were written to be. But nowadays... That doesn't really mean too much. You know, people flake all the time, right? We have things like contracts and written signed agreements and evites and RSVPs and all this other stuff, right? Because remember in the first sermon where we made multiple distinctions between covenants and contracts. Contracts were here to, to motivate us to fulfill our end of the relationship, whatever personal professional relationship that might be. And those motivations were usually penalties. Whether you're breaking your apartment lease or you're not fulfilling your end of the, the, the building project that you're, you're working on. Contracts are here because it assumes something about the nature of humankind. It assumes something about our nature, our inconsistency. We are fickle. We are finite. We are flaky. So we have RSVP forms, right, for events, for birthday parties, for everything. We have actions like pinky swears or paying down a deposit or a guarantor when we're trying to rent out an apartment, an expensive one. We have sayings like what some of us used to say as kids, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. We swear by something else, or we swear by, or we appeal to someone else, right? Because of the uncertainty and the unreliability of human words and human promises. And that's partly because, and mainly because of our sin, of our brokenness. Now, one of the most important doctrines of the character of God is the doctrine of immutability, which is really just this fancy theological word for saying that God doesn't change. So when we think about what that means, right, for God not to change means that he cannot increase. He cannot improve. He cannot grow because if God changes, he is either changing for the worse, which is not good, or he is changing for the better, which implies that he was before wasn't that good to begin with. And so for God not to change, for him to be unchanging, is to say that he is perfect. God 
is immutable, immutable, unchangeable in his essence, in his will, in his purpose. God accomplishes all that he sets out to do. And so Kevin DeYoung said this. I like how he phrased it. He said, God is the only being in the entire universe who always completes his to-do list every day. For someone like me, for those of you who know me, that, that rings you know, really close to me because I love my to-do list. I, I spend probably uh, an exorbitant amount of time trying to analyze my to-do list. I categorize my tasks, my Trello boards uh, with like, you know, red means this task will take two plus hours. Yellow means it's going to take an hour. You know, green means it's going to take 15 minutes. I just spend all this time rearranging, organizing, all that, planning out every minute of my day. And at the end of the day, I still am not able to accomplish it all. I still have to move things to another day because things come up. So this pastor goes on to say, why can't we depend fully on other human beings all the time? Because there are flaws in their character, because they change. So to use his words, I am not always dependable because the Jeffness of Pastor Jeff is not always as good on Monday as it is on Sunday. But God, his character doesn't change. His purpose does not change. His nature does not change. And here in Malachi, God is consistent. He is constant in his treatment of his people. And so this is what Malachi means then when we head to this next verse, when he speaks forth God's word to Israel and he assures them, return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. So this is not, like, we could read it this way, but I don't think this is what Malachi intends. Like, we might read it as, you know, God being super petty, right, and saying, well, you make the first move. You return to me, and then I will return to you. Now, this is, this is God assuring them that from the days of your fathers, meaning generation after generation, year after year after year, you have turned aside Israel from my statutes and have not kept them. And though that is the case, if you return to me, I will still be there. I will still be there to welcome you back. I will not have left. I will not have broken my promise to you. I will not have abandoned you. And the reason why, the reason why you, us, we can have that assurance is because I, the Lord, do not change. And so this passage here, is, is more than getting God's people to comply with some sort of legalistic giving, right? Give them a number and have them follow through, right? To fulfill the obligations of the Mosaic law. In Malachi's dispute with God's people, it's this theme of reversal. The people needed to reverse the curse through reversing their, their attitude and their behavior, their entire trajectory and their direction in their covenant relationship with Yahweh God. And, and that reversal is their repentance, a return to God. Verse 7, return here, it's, it's a complete and total 180, a reorientation, a change of direction away from God now towards God. This wasn't merely like, oh, you know, I, I, I wandered off the path, I took a wrong exit, and maybe I'll just take the next exit back on. No, this is literally, I've taken a U-turn. And I face the opposite direction. And God is calling Israel, he's calling us to return, to turn back. 
And again, Malachi begins with this assurance of God's commitment to his covenant relationship with his people. God doesn't change. Return to me, and God will return to you. To mean that God doesn't move the goalposts. And we don't need to worry that if we return to God, God is going to say, well, hey, actually, you still need to do this thing and that thing and those other things. You know, some of us, maybe we've been strained for a long time. Maybe we did take that U-turn many years ago, and we're trying to find our way back. And, and Malachi's word to us in this, is an assurance that if we were to turn back to God, God is still going to be there. God will still be there. You know, sometimes in a relationship, you know, one person is ready to apologize, and the other is not ready to forgive, you know, or vice versa. Some of us have been there, right? You know, and it's this kind of dance, this awkward, tense, uncertain, you know, will they, won't they stalemate, where it's like, well, you need to make the first move, right? In the same way, metaphorically speaking, though, if I turn towards God, maybe that fear is still there. Like, will he still be there? You know, what if it's been years where my back has been turned towards God? And I'm going to, am I going to turn around and find that he got tired and left? He lost his patience and he's gone? Or that maybe, maybe he's not the same God that I gave my life to those many years ago? Like I've changed over the years. Maybe he's changed and we're just two different beings now. It's not compatible. Much like how we might approach and treat our relationships here on earth. You know, or is he going to say to me, you, know, you took too long. It's too late. Malachi assures us from God. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. Return to me, and I will return to you. God's constancy is a comfort when we return to God, when we repent. And so, you know, how do, how do we return to God? Exactly. That, that, and that's the people's question, right? But you say, How shall we return? Now, for them, given their track record as we've been making our way through Malachi, they're asking it in a way that is not genuine, right? They're actually not probably wanting to seek new information to ground their repentance or their right worship. Their response might also be taken as like a protest, right? Claiming their innocence. So I think I like how the, the NLT, the New Living Translation, it captures it well. It says, but you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? So they're either playing dumb about their disobedience or they're denying it altogether. Nevertheless, God answers them. He focuses on one area. He says this in verses 8 to 10. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Lord replies, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So this is the, the second point this morning for us. We turn to God by not robbing God. When God says, you're robbing me, it, it makes a claim on the very wealth and possessions in our hands in our bank accounts, in our Venmo accounts, what's in our pockets right now. God has a claim on all of that. When he says, you are robbing me, 
And so there's a twist on, on an idiom that goes something like this, right? What's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. Now, I think most of us know that's probably wrong when, you know, it won't go too well if you say that to your roommate, uh, and that's how you treat their stuff, right? What's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. Now, I'm going to wear clothes from your closet without asking you, because who asked for something that is theirs? Now, I'm going to use your Netflix password, but you can't have my Disney Plus, or I'm eating your groceries, but I'm not going to let you use my Costco card. I'm going to posit that there's one situation for us this morning, presented to us this morning, where this twist is true. And that is true when it refers to God. And that's what Malachi, I think, is driving at, that what's mine is God's, what's God's is God's. So four times Malachi mentions this word rob. It's an ongoing practice. This is what they've been doing. How exactly, though? God says that in your tithes, in your contributions. And so notice that they were giving, right? They were giving offering and tithes and contributions. But even in their giving, they were robbing God. And so it wasn't the absence of giving. I mean, that would probably would have been far worse. But it wasn't, it wasn't the absence of giving that put them on notice. But the manner of giving that charged them with robbing God. God. There's a, maybe another hyperlink that takes us back to chapter 1, a similarity with the sacrifices mentioned there in chapter 1, verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. And so people were giving in that instance. They were giving, but they weren't giving their best. They were treating God's name with contempt, and the priests were charged with leading the people astray, causing many of them to stumble by their instruction and their corruption. And so tithes and and contributions, or their giving and offering here, is highlighted here as a specific area needing repentance and right worship. Now, there's many areas where we could repent and focus on, but this is one area that Malachi and God was, was highlighting and zooming in on. They were withholding. They were holding back, right? They weren't giving God what he is due. And so the result in that instance, because of the old covenant uh, promises and blessings and curses, they were suffering covenant curses due due to their greediness and their stinginess. And so under the Mosaic covenant in Deuteronomy 28, we read about the fruit of their ground being cursed, frustration in all that they undertake to do if they were to renege, if they were to betray and turn away from God. Malachi is not specific about the exact nature and the extent of this curse. He didn't need to be because he's writing to people who are experiencing it right now. But in verse 11, we kind of get a hint at what it might be. It seems to be some sort of agricultural curse, something like a plague or a drought or famine And we're not sure, but it's probably something that was impacting their ability to produce significant crops. And so the irony here for them is that the people were not giving God what he is due because they had poor crops. But the reality was that they had poor crops because they were not giving God what he is due. The word tithe means a tenth. It's like 10%. But when we read through the scriptures, there's actually multiple tithes in the law of Moses. And we could kind of add add them all up, probably amounted to about actually 20 to 25%. 
So I'll read through a couple of these. There's the Levitical tithe, Numbers 18, 21, 24. To the Levites, I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. And so the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? They didn't receive a portion of the promised land like the other tribes of Israel, but rather they were appointed to serve in the tabernacle or the temple, and some as priests, but some in other roles too. And they would be supported by the tithes that would come from the land and of the other peoples. There was also the festival tithe. Deuteronomy 14. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, that you're not able to carry the tithe, because these would be like animals, right? Or, or other large things that would be hard to carry. It says, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep, or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. And so this is, this is an interesting tithe, right? Because they're being asked to take what is God's and to spend it on themselves, which I think for some of us, for our church, it's kind of hard sometimes to spend money on ourselves, right? But remember that the, the, the goal of this was not just to relish in our own success or anything like that. It was to fear God, to worship God, and to rejoice in him. So according to these instructions, the Israelites were to bring their tithe to the designated place of worship to be consumed and to be enjoyed by themselves and their households during the festivals and celebrations. It was to be enjoyed by the people as an act of worship and celebration that they may learn to fear the Lord their God always. There was also the social tithe. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So this was a tithe for the resident alien, the orphan, the widow, and the Levite. So you have three tithes now, right? Three tithes, one that goes to the Levites, and Levitical priests, one that goes to themselves, and one that goes to the people among them who are the least fortunate. But all three tithes are ultimately giving to God. Three tithes that amount to about, I don't know, 23 and a third percent or so, right? And in Malachi now, we, we have uh, these two words that are paired together, right? Tithing, tithes, which we just kind of talked about, and contributions, Tithes and offerings in some translations. And the word contributions or offerings, it's referring to a tithe of the tithe. So Numbers 18, it says, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, when you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I've given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it 
to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And so what's happening here is that the Levites, who themselves were to, were to give a tithe from the tithe that they received. And so now when the Lord says, when the Lord says, you have robbed me in your tithes and offerings, and to bring the full tithe into the storehouse, it is a call to a complete, comprehensive renewal of their giving. Return to God by not robbing God. Now, to be clear, the robbing of God was a symptom of a more serious condition, a heart problem, as we've been kind of hitting at week in and week out here in Malachi. Right? The dispute here begins not with robbing God, but with returning to God. Repentance and right worship first. But that can be expressed later through faithful and obedient giving. Now, we talked a lot about things about tithing because that's what Malachi is focused on, right, with God's people in today's passage. But what about us today? Do we tithe? Is tithing a thing? I think there's, there's sometimes I've heard like two questions that we might want to ask when it comes to the topic of tithing. But I think it might miss the point of what both Malachi and even Jesus in the New Testament teaches about giving. And so the two questions I hear a lot are this. Should I tithe? And how much should I give? So to tithe or not to tithe? That's not the question. It's not the question because it's not simply about whether we're supposed to follow this rule. It's, you know, it, it is first, as Malachi established, first about returning to God. Because Jesus didn't abolish the tithe in the same way that he said in Matthew 5, 17, right? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, whatever's in the law, or the prophets, but I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so I think what Jesus does is he takes us beyond the tithe takes us beyond the tithe, right? Because he calls out the Pharisees in Luke 11. He says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the issue here is not whether they tithe or how much, right? It's the fact that their tithing was a cover for their injustice to others and their lack of love for God. In Paul, too, he's written a lot about the, the Jerusalem collection for the saints. We, we kind of hit on that when we were going through Acts and his missionary journeys. He was going through these different places trying to collect something for the poor and for the Jerusalem church. And he actually never leverages the command to tithe when he writes about to these early Christians giving to the offering for the Jerusalem church. He never says, well, look at what the law says. You have to tithe, so pay up, right? Because I think what's happening here with Jesus and Paul and the whole meta-narrative of Scripture is that they're taking us beyond the tithe. So now it's, it's a focus on conviction, not about compulsion. It's about generosity, not about limitations. When we think about the different ways in which we might rob God, it's not about, hey, just, you know, Pastor Jeff, just give me a number, Right? Or tell me what to do. I think it first begins with our posture before God. An understanding of this idea of stewardship, right? That what's mine is God's and what's God's is God's. And one of the things that I've seen our, some of our worship leaders do, and I really appreciate them as they do, is they, they intro, right? And they intro and highlight our offering time in our order of worship. 
They sometimes note these two things, that what we give and implicitly what we keep both belong to God. It's all God's. What's mine is his. What's his is his, right? And the second, that our giving is also an act of worship, much like our singing too, right? This is why here at Crossbridge, we still have a dedicated time for offering. It's not simply a box in the back or form thing that you can fill out online. We, you know, we do have those things, but having a space in our order of worship for giving, for offering, is to show that this too is an act of worship from us. In the same way that when we sing these songs and praise God, in the same way that when we read Scripture and have Scripture be read aloud or have the sermon or all these other things, all these things are an act of worship from us to God. And that includes our giving as well. In, in poker, there's this thing called an ante. Some of you guys have played poker before, right? Texas Hold'em or whatever, right? It's a required contribution from each player at the table that they have to give before the cards are even dealt. And so they have to, what they call, right, ante up first. Likewise, I think when we rob God, we're not giving God what he is due. We're not anteing up. You know, sometimes it means not giving him anything at all. Sometimes it means, though, withholding our best. And sometimes it means looking to only meet the minimums. Sometimes it means giving him our leftovers. So I like what, what John Piper, how you put it, he gave this analogy that I heard him say one time, that, that robbing God is akin to making ourselves into a cul-de-sac instead of a channel. And some of you guys know what a cul-de-sac is. You look to buy a house and though it's like super prized, right, because it's a dead-end street, the houses are valued highly there. And, you know, a cul-de-sac or dead-end street where we kind of stockpile our money rather than to see ourselves as a channel to steward what belongs to God and to use it to bless others and to further the cause of Christ. And so, yes, we should ante up and give God our due. But remember, it's about a grateful offering. It's about giving joyfully. No, because it's not like our gift to God can make him any richer, right? And C.S. Lewis writes about this in Mere Christianity. He says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, it's given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense his own already. So that when we talk of a man or a woman doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what it's really like. It's like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he is pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. When a man has, or a woman has made these two discoveries, God can really get to work. It's after this that real life begins. A man or a woman is awake now. Our giving does bring God pleasure. It's an act of worship that honors him, even if it doesn't really make him any more richer than he already is, so to speak. So the first two points, right? God's constancy is a comfort when we return to God. Return to God then by not robbing God. And so here's the third and last point, verses 10 to 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food 
in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Tithing or giving, if we go beyond the tithe, tithing is a test of faith to trust in God. God is inviting Israel here in our passage to test him. It's a different Hebrew word, though, from the one in Deuteronomy 6.16 where it says, you know, you should not put the Lord your God to the test as you have tested him at Massah. Here, to test God here, it's not from a posture of arrogance or cynical unbelief, but from a posture of honest doubt with the intention to encourage faith in God. Like, I'm at a point now where you know, I, I'm unsure, but I want my faith to grow. I want to be challenged. I want to see God be God earnestly, genuinely, and so I'm going to stretch. In our giving, how often are we being challenged to grow our faith, to trust in God and his provision? And I'm not uh, the one to be very flexible at all. I found this, I was reminded of this when I was, I was, just flew back in from Taiwan uh, two days ago. And, you know, being on that plane and staying in those hotel beds really reminded me that I really need to stretch. You know, and some of you can relate, right? That like our muscles are really tight. It's not in the good sense of the word tight. You know, if I were to stand up and I, I'm not going to try and reach my toes, but if I would, I might pull something right here, right now on stage. And, and that's why I like, like some of you, I need to stretch. And we don't go from barely being able to, to lean over to, you know, fully grabbing my toes with my whole hand instantly. To stretch, though, also means that, you know, we're going to feel some of that burn. Faith is a muscle that needs to be stretched. And one of the ways to do that is through obedience in giving. And so, again, it's not about a number, right? If, if we were to take the tithe literally, 10% for some people might make them look like Olympic gymnasts, right? That it's nothing. 10% is nothing. Not a stretch, barely breaking a sweat. But for others, 10% might literally be breaking the bank. But I think, again, what Jesus does is he takes us beyond the tithe. You know, if we're looking for some baseline, maybe 10% is a good place to start. Why, though? Because if we think about it, those people in the Old Testament, they were commanded to give a tithe. And then for us, living on this side of the cross, knowing Jesus and having the Spirit and being transformed by the Spirit, being in this new covenant relationship, we should value all that so highly, so richly that we would simply love to give. Be freed even more to give to the cause of Christ, to further his kingdom, and to give more out of a deep gratitude for our God and for the blessings that he has already blessed us with in Jesus. So this morning, let us consider that, how we might be stretched to grow, to trust in God 
through many means, but specifically in our passage this morning, through our giving, through our offering, through our contributions to the kingdom. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks to you for you are an unchanging God. You are a God who is sure, who is not fickle, who is not finite, who is not flaky. And that gives us a great and deep assurance for us to turn towards you, to know that you are there, that you have always been there. You have shown your steadfast love through Jesus on the cross. Help us then to rejoice in that, to worship you through giving you everything that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise for the song of response.